Hello, I'm Ben Hyten, and this is the latest mini-episode of The Anthology Presents Forgotten Films. This week I want to talk a little bit about one of the big Oscar films from 1981, the film that we discussed last time, uh, and another recent release uh, that may have passed you by. Uh, I think it's probably poised to become a future cult film, uh, but I definitely think uh, there's a lot to recommend in it, so I'll talk about that in a bit. And keen-eared listeners don't know why I've suddenly adopted this voice. Keen-eared listeners will remember that last week we uh, premiered our new spoiler klaxon, in inverted commas. Um, I have had feedback that you can't really call it a spoiler klaxon. It's not even really a jingle. It is simply some music with me talking over the top. But I liked it, it was moody, it fit what we were doing, and as predicted, it was produced for us by uh, Ewan Robinson, who is an old school friend of mine. He came on last year to talk about Legend with us. Uh, he's an excellent musician, and by way of thanks for uh, the spoiler sounds, I guess we should call it, uh, that he's provided for us, um, and he's actually done more than one, so you may hear more from Ewan in the weeks to come. Uh, Ewan is also in a band called Hawkman Dive, uh, as in Flash Gordon, Brian Blessed, and they are rather excellent. So at the end of the episode, I'm going to play uh, one of their songs for you. I'll also give you some details of where you can see more from Hawkman Dive uh, at the end. So I mentioned last time that we all gathered together like this, that I was going to watch the Warren Beatty film Reds from 1981. Now, this was nominated for, I believe, 12 Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Writing, uh, Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, and it won three major awards as well. Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Best Cinematography, and Best Director. It's not a film that you hear much about anymore, so I thought it was worth maybe taking a look at. Beatty is a is an interesting case study because he's one of the real power players from the 60s and 70s era of American cinema. Obviously had his big breakthrough with Bonnie and Clyde in the late 60s. Um, and by the time this film came out in 81, which is only 12 or 13 years later, he's a very successful actor, but also a very successful producer and director and uh, has worked in the 70s with some of the very, very best directors out there, like um, Alan Pacula uh, on The Parallax View, which is a fantastic film. And I, I always kind of get the feeling that there's a bit of audience resistance to Warren Beatty. He is fiercely intelligent, he's devastatingly handsome, and a very, very capable, uh, intriguing man, but a lot of people are just turned off by him. It's interesting to look at this as, as a film that he won Best Director for. Um, Alex will probably find it quite amusing what I'm about to say, because this is something that he has said in the past about uh, films that I like very much, which I won't name. But he's made the comment that regardless of how capable the film might be, he couldn't really understand a reason for it to exist. And I think this tends to apply to biopics where you're drawing on someone's real life experience and, and feel that this needs to be put in front of an audience. And I do kind of feel that way a little bit about Reds. Now, that's not to say that the character that Beatty 
is telling the story of and indeed playing the part of um, a, an American journalist and poet, not revolutionary, yeah, revolutionary actually, uh, or, or wannabe anyway, called Jack Reed, isn't an interesting character. He, he certainly had a pretty incredible life. It doesn't necessarily make for an incredible film. There's a, there's a lot of things that are really good about this film. The cast is pretty incredible. You've got Beatty, you've got Diane Keaton, Jack Nicholson, fresh off of The Shining, as a much better poet, Eugene O'Neill, is riveting whenever he's on screen. He's just eminently watchable. And he's playing someone who is morally ambiguous, um, sort of festering with unfulfilled spite a lot of the time as well. And Nicholson is phenomenal in that role. M. Emmett Walsh, Edward Herman, Paul Sorvino. I'm not going to go through the whole cast. There is a lot of really great character actors in this film. The cinematography is by uh, Vittorio Storaro, who a couple of years earlier had done Apocalypse Now, which I read today has just been voted by the American Society of Cinematographers the third best shot film of all time. I don't know how you quantify that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll allow it. Yeah, and yeah, he won an Oscar for this. It's a, it's a, a very, very good script. Very, very good performances. And it's a relatively interesting story. I don't know why it doesn't hold together. It's three and a quarter hours long. And it feels it. It, it doesn't really have much of a shape it sort of peaks around the two-hour mark. And I just kind of felt this could be done a lot more effectively with a lot less film. And it's not so often that I would endorse trimming a film down by an hour uh, because that would tend to gut it. But yeah, Reds might have made a pretty great two-hour film. It doesn't make a great three-and-a-quarter-hour film. What's really curious about it is that it won Best Director. Best Cinematography, fine. I, it may have not been a great year for, for films uh, in that regard. There is nothing wrong with the photography in this film, but there's certainly nothing that you're going to write about or much that's going to linger in the memory for a long time, with the exception of one shot, which is a pretty amazing shot of the Russian steps, I guess you call them, um, and it's nearly all sky and it's barren and Beatty is, is walking towards you. It's a very David Lean, Lawrence of Arabia kind of shot. But one great shot does not an Oscar make, surely. The script is rat-a-tat dialogue a lot of the time. The dialogue is incredible. And Beatty delivers it, you know, very, very well, as you would expect him to. I think my main feeling about it, though, is why this guy... I actually probably would have preferred a, a film about Eugene O'Neill. And I know that that's maybe the curse of a supporting actor stealing the show whenever they appear. And that's because of the brevity and, and making an impact in a small amount of time. But his unrequited love for Diane Keaton's character is actually much more compelling and interesting in the short scenes where it's allowed to be shown than the sort of long drawn out not really very compelling love story between Beatty and Keaton. And the main thing that I felt about it was I wasn't emotionally involved. There is occasionally a, a, a striking moment or shot 
or a piece of music. Stephen Sondheim was involved in the music for this film, which is that's just mind-blowing to me. And there's an interesting technique that uh, Beta uses where, because this is a true story from a very early period of the 20th century, I think it starts around 1915 and goes through to just after the war and the Russian Revolution, obviously. Uh, well, not obviously if you don't know what the film is about. There are very elderly survivors from that period who knew Jack Reed, uh, who knew Louise Bryant, the uh, Diane Keaton character, and indeed, you know, Eugene O'Neill and and all of these players. And they recount different sides of this story. And sometimes to quite comical effect, it's uh, one person will make a very definite statement about a character and it will be juxtaposed with a completely different person giving a completely different but equally vehement view about the same person or thing. So all through the film, a lot like the how the couples appear throughout When Harry Met Sally in sort of vox pop form, we, we have short or sometimes extended sequences of, of these people talking direct to camera in a documentary form, real, you know, the real survivors of uh, these events, into the, then interspersed with the dramatization of, of the same thing. I I actually think a documentary about this might have been more compelling. The, the, Jack Reed was basically a journalist who, um, as one of these survivors says very early on, had the fortune to live in very dramatic times and, and traveling around the world, presumably with a fair bit of capital behind him, got to see fascinating war-torn, you know, revolutionary times. And he becomes a communist and tries to bring the communism of the Russian Revolution to America. And this is the beginning of the Red Scare period. That's really all the plot there is, uh, other than this love triangle or love story between him and Diane Keaton's character and occasionally Jack Nicholson will come into it. And Reed is the kind of character who, when someone goes to knock on his apartment door, they stop because there's a sign there that says, property is theft, walk in. He's that kind of guy. Nowadays, you'd probably want to punch him. But back then, yeah, probably very radical. The most interesting aspect of the film is it's, is that, I guess, it is about communism at a time where the Cold War was still in effect. Uh, you know, you think about some of the, the films that came out in the 80s, like um, When the Wind Blows and Threads and The Day After. The threat of, a, of an American or, or British and Russian nuclear war was very much in people's minds. So it's quite ballsy, I guess, for Beatty to make a compassionate, um, relatively even-handed, sympathetic story about a communist that was born in America. I've always thought that it's interesting that communism, or communist, uh, has taken on a pejorative aspect, akin to how you would use the word fascism or fascist. Which is crazy if you actually look at what communism is. Communism is, uh, as an idea, is something quite aspirational, I think. It's about fairness. It's about distribution of labor and reward. And so I think there's definitely a place for a story like this to be told. I just wish it had been with more impact. Because it didn't get that message across of like, this is what communism really is. Don't believe the bullshit. Obviously, communist states and communist governments have done awful things. Um, I'm not whitewashing that. This film doesn't want to whitewash that. 
Um, it's not really the subject of the film, though. So, like I say, I think there's a place for it. I just think this film didn't really hit hard, and it, it baffles me that Beatty won Best Director for this. There's nothing wrong with this film at all. It's very good. It's just not spectacular. And it, it's always slightly confusing when Best Film and Best Director are split, because this didn't win Best Film. Chariots of Fire did. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Chariots of Fire either. It, again, it's a perfectly fine film. But how that could win Best Picture, I kind of understand. It's very rousing. It does have an emotional wallop. So why not Why not Best Director there as well? What is it that Beatty did here that got him Best Director? And I think it's a case of the Academy. Not that they're a hive mind, but there was possibly a feeling that Beatty had earned the award in some way. Not necessarily for this film, but for a body of work. Would have expected it to come later in his career, but as it turns out, he didn't really do too much that was mind-blowing in his later years. I do, I do really respect Warren Beatty, and I think he's, he's always tried to make films that were slightly against the grain, but populist at the same time. I think Dick Tracy is, is a brilliant example of a forgotten film, especially in the comic book genre. So it may be a film that we talk more about further down the line. I don't want to say too much about it here. But films like Bullworth, which was quite a troubled film, I think. Another film that came out quite late, and so it was one of those that was expected to be really awful. Kind of turned out to be pretty great, I think. It's very of its time. It's very late 90s. But I really like Bullworth. And the only other film that he's directed uh, since then was a couple of years ago, Rules Don't Apply, which was about an elderly Howard Hughes. Now, I haven't seen it, but uh, that was a... A failure, for sure, on a commercial level, but got very good reviews. Well, relatively good reviews. And hearing Beatty talk about it, talk about how hard it is to make a film like that in present-day Hollywood, is, is, is really, really interesting. I suspect he probably won't get to direct another film in his lifetime. He's, he's quite an old man now. So it's always interesting to dip back into his filmography. Red's, although possibly one of his career highlights, personally, not one of his um, greatest achievements in my book. As such, can't really recommend it. There's There are moments where it comes to life, there are some intriguing ideas in it. I think there's a much better film to be made about this subject. Uh, if anyone would like to recommend any films that they know that deal with similar sort of stuff in an interesting way, I would very much appreciate hearing about that. But at three and a quarter hours... I, I really can't recommend this unless you are either a, a, a Beatty superfan, a Jack Nicholson completist, or just uh, really want to learn more about communism in the first half of the 20th century in America. Uh, there is a film that's not hugely dissimilar from this coming up in a few weeks' time that I think is better. So I, hopefully I'll remember to mention it when we talk about it. Um, so I know that this sort of subject matter can be dealt with in a, an entertaining and witty way. Reds wasn't quite it for me, I'm afraid. Now, a film that came out uh, around the middle of last year, 2018, that flew under the radar somewhat, but seemed to get good notices uh, in a lot of corners of the critical world, uh, so I was intrigued by, and I hunted it down this weekend because it's out for digital download now, was Lee Wanell's Upgrade, starring Logan Marshall Green. Now, from the trailers, <laughs> it 
you could be forgiven for thinking that this was uh, a sci-fi channel asylum studios cheap knockoff of venom uh, to get it out there you know and make some money before venom came out because logan marshall green as many people have commented does look like the guy you get when you can't afford tom hardy and this seems to be i haven't seen venom just as a as a disclosure there but this seems to be dealing with some similar kind of material in that his character logan marshall green's character is upgraded with an artificial intelligence and uh, has a war going on within within his own body with this artificial intelligence which can control his body or at least assist the control of his body to begin with uh, which is not massively dissimilar from a symbiote taking over your body when it feels like it upgrade is i would describe it as monkey shines the george a romero film about a guy who is paralyzed by a car crash and uh, sort of mind melds with a monkey helper it's an interesting film monkey shines not hugely successful in everything it tries to do but curious nonetheless monkey shines mixed with hardcore henry now there's lots of other films that i could have picked for the second part of that equation dare I say there's plenty i could have picked for the first half of the equation but Hardcore Henry specifically because of how much it leans on video game aesthetic. And there are shots in Upgrade that very much reminded me of a third-person fighting game. It's not its not a POV film the way that um, Hardcore Henry is, which is obviously like a first-person shooter. But there's definitely video game influence here. So what happens is Logan Marshall Green's character... Uh, is uh, paralyzed after an incident with a gang and his wife who basically exists only to give him a motive for revenge is killed uh, in this attack that is a classic case of fridging for any comic book nerds out there but is aware of a, a kind of creepy dorky he looks about 12 years old scientist who's developed a, a special chip with an artificial intelligence and nanotechnology in it that will fix his now quadriplegic body but he will also now start to hear a voice in his head so he can't speak to it telepathically he has to speak out loud but only he can hear the voice inside his body and more than just allowing him to walk it turns him into something of an avenging angel with almost precognitive ability to predict if someone is attacking him how to block and fight back and <laughs> um yeah things go things go from there i really don't want to spoil anything more about this film other than the premise because i thought this was great i really really enjoyed it and this is a classic b movie it's got a pretty derivative premise it's got a sort of b or even c list cast of actors it's got a mid-budget, and it's not aspiring to uh, anything particularly lofty. You know, if you've seen uh, Dr. Octopus in Spider-Man 2, that's basically what's going on with Logan Marshall Green here, but with um, a body count, or, I mean, a serious body count, and some, you know, blood and gore. A couple of uh, <laughs> bits earlier on in the film when the uh, when the chip starts to take over, kind of shocked when they happened, so you should know that the shocking violence is up front, 
there's not so much of it. It becomes a lot easier to get into after that. If you if you don't like extreme violence, this is not that movie. It's fine, um, but it is. It's probably an 18 certificate. I would have thought. I didn't check. It's not wall to wall action though. It, it, what I really liked about this film is it does take the time to just go that extra bit in trying to build a believable world. It's the near future. You know, there are self-driving cars. This guy is a bit of a, a stick in the mud, uh, a Luddite almost for, you know, artificial intelligence and self-driving cars and such. He he likes to fix things by hand. He's fixing up an old classic car. I don't, you know, he's a mechanic. So obviously losing the ability to use his hands and become reliant on a, on a machine, uh, you know, a cybernetic intelligence pisses him off a little bit and he's a bit reluctant to get on board with it. But then he understands that this will give him the ability to wreak revenge and is a revenge story essentially there's a conspiracy of course there is if you can't spot where the conspiracy is headed in the first i'd say 10 15 minutes of this film you really need to have a word um this is generic stuff but i love i love when a film has relatively low expectations and just commits to smashing the hell out of them the action in this film is inventive it's entertaining as hell. It's not a film like The Raid that has fight scenes that go on forever and ever and ever. They are short, sharp bursts of action and they're really effective. The camera work is imaginative. The effects are spot on. Again, not used all, all throughout the film. There's much more reliance on moody lighting and music. But when the effects are there, there's no problems whatsoever. I think if you could enjoy a film like Lock Up, I think it was Lockout, the Guy Pierce film from a few years ago. A cheesy fun, you know, cut rate, escape from New York kind of stuff. This is better than Lockout. And I didn't have too many problems with Lockout, to be honest. I enjoyed it. Um, last film I ever bought from Blockbuster Video, I believe. Upgrade is 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 great. It's a real little sleeper hit. Um, I heard, like I said, I haven't seen Venom. I'd be surprised if it entertains me as much as this did. And there are a couple of surprises. There were a couple of things that I thought they're not gonna they're not gonna do that. Oh, they did. Great. It just left me with a smile on my face. I will be recommending this to everyone who is into the kind of movies that we love talking about on the Arnithology, those cheesy action films that are just satisfy. Look, True Lies is my favourite Arnie film. That should tell you everything you need to know about my appreciation for this kind of film. It entertained me, it's not realistic, it didn't blow my mind. It's a part of my collection now. It's going to get rewatched. I'm going to share it with people. You should do the same. Go and check out Upgrade. I, I really, that's all I have to say about it. It's not a five star film. It's a solid four for me, though. Reds, I'd probably go ultimately a three. said up top that, that there's not too much to talk about today that's it i'm i'm pretty happy with that hope you are i'm gonna play you out now with the latest cut from a band called hawkman dive uh, this is ewan robinson's band um he plays at least the bass with them i believe he does more than that in terms of the orchestration uh he's not the lead singer though i believe the lead singer is called sally that's all i know i'm afraid hawkman dive if you like the sound of this and to me it sounds like uh, it could be the opening credits to a David Lynch film from the 90s. And I mean that as a compliment, Ewan, if you're listening. 
I really like this song. This is called Are You Happy Now? Give it a listen. If you like Hawkmen Dive, uh, look for them on Facebook. They are based out of the northwest of England. Um, so if you're in the northwest, uh, you might be able to get to see them live sometime. I believe they are playing Night and Day in Manchester, which is a fantastic bar for live music on March the 7th. Yeah, um, which is a Thursday night. Get out there and give them a look. Give them some attention. Give them some love. Hawkman Dive. Are you happy now? Until next time, when we'll be talking about 1982, that's all from me. Let us know what you think at theornithology at gmail.com. Thanks and goodbye.